Today, we say enough. Even war has rules. Stop the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. There should not be a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. Médecins Sans Frontières was formed in 1971 to provide medical aid to people in need in extremely difficult situations. Since then, our staff have often been eyewitnesses to all kinds of abuses. They've seen the consequences of political power games on people's lives, and sometimes the deadly inaction of the international community. Life-threatening events like the forced transfer of the population in Ethiopia in the 1980s, the genocide of Rwandan Tutsi in the 1990s, or the indiscriminate bombings of civilians in Chechnya in the late 90s, early 2000s. All were complex, highly charged, and often dangerous situations for everyone involved. And so, speaking out posed a dilemma for MSF. It meant taking a risk. So what does lead MSF to speak out as a medical humanitarian organization? Speaking out can't be reduced to a set of guidelines. Every crisis is different. So MSF created the Speaking Out Case Studies series to reflect this complexity. This international project, written and directed by Laurence Binet, focuses on crises in which speaking out raised dilemmas for MSF. Dilemmas that sometimes led to controversies. My name is Nick Owen and I'm from MSF. In this series, we're going to be looking in depth at the fallout from the 1994 genocide of Rwandan Tutsi, in particular, the impact it had on the population and the refugees in the neighboring country, the Democratic Republic of Congo, back then known as Zaire. Over eight episodes will follow the violent conflict in Zaire during 1996 and 1997, a conflict that was the continuation of the ongoing tensions and long-standing strategies of political military extremists that stirred up ethnic resentment and led to the genocide against the Rwandan Tutsi minority just two years earlier. Through MSF press releases, internal reports and speeches, as well as news articles and eyewitness testimonies from MSF staff, we'll find out how MSF was trying to push the international agenda towards action and learn about some of the difficult questions and dilemmas the teams had to face. Questions like, when MSF has no access to the refugees themselves, can and should the organisation publicly extrapolate from the condition of refugees and their potential health needs what their fate might be? On the other hand, given the lack of access, should MSF refrain from making predictions that will be picked up in the media? And is it wise for a humanitarian organisation to predict the worst? We'll then look at whether MSF should cease activities in an area when its team is being used to lure refugees from hiding and be killed. Or should the organisation carry on while condemning the manipulation in the hope of preventing massacres, agreeing to persevere at the risk of endangering its teams and other operations in the region? Lastly, should MSF call for the Hutu refugees to remain in eastern Zaire, knowing the danger they'll face? Or should the organisation participate in the forced repatriation to Rwanda, where their security is not guaranteed either? Through exploring these dilemmas and analysing the actions that were taken at the time, we'll review a moment in the history of the Great Lakes of Central Africa 
and of MSF. This is Speaking Out, the hunting and killing of Rwandan refugees in Zaire, a podcast by MSF. Episode 1, Resumption of War in Eastern Zaire. Let's start with some background. On the 6th of April 1994, a plane carrying the Rwandan president is shot down on its approach to the capital, Kigali. Within hours of the president's death, Hutu militias begin to systematically kill the ethnic Tutsi minority in Rwanda. These militiamen are mostly civilians controlled by the Rwandan armed forces. An exiled Tutsi opposition movement called the Rwandan Patriotic Front, or RPF, send the armed wing of their group over the border from Uganda into northern Rwanda. These troops, known as the Rwandan Patriotic Army, or RPA, are led by Commander Paul Kagame. They push their way south towards the capital, Kigali. MSF teams belatedly realise that they are not facing a civil war, but a genocide. They try to mobilise officials from various governments and international institutions. In June 1994, MSF issues public statements to try to get international authorities to act. They believe that humanitarian action is powerless to save lives when a genocide is taking place, and that only a multinational armed force deployed to Rwanda might be able to stop the killers. But there is no movement from the international community. In just three months, the Hutu militia, or Intirahamwe as they're referred to, kills between half a million and one million Rwandan Tutsi. They also murder many Rwandan Hutu who are against the massacres. By the end of July 1994, the rebel Rwandan Patriotic Army from Uganda reaches Kigali and seizes power in Rwanda. With a Tutsi group now in power, Hutu militiamen and former soldiers, as well as military and political leaders involved in the genocide, escape Rwanda. They head for the refugee camps that are springing up across the border in eastern Zaire and force Hutu civilians to come with them so that they can blend in and hide among them in the camps. More than one million Rwandan Hutu flee over the border to Zaire. It's not difficult for the militiamen to convince people to leave, as many are afraid that the Rwandan Patriotic Army will start massacring Hutu civilians in retribution for the atrocities their people have suffered. Despite warnings from humanitarian organisations, especially MSF, no international action is taken to separate the refugees from the criminals who perpetrated the genocide. Through the massive diversion of aid, violence, propaganda and threats against Hutu refugees who want to repatriate to Rwanda, the perpetrators of the genocide transform these camps into rear bases for planning a reconquest of Rwanda. MSF Holland has been running health assistance programmes in eastern Zaire since 1993. This area, known as the Kivus, is already home to many Zairean Hutu and Tutsi. The Tutsi ethnic groups, known collectively as the Banya Mulenge, have been in the region since the 17th century. They have a long history in the area, as do the Zairean Hutus, and there have been tensions between the two for a while, just as there were in Rwanda. When MSF Holland Field Coordinator Rachel Kidel Monroe arrives in Masisi, in North Kivu, in February 1996, 
she finds there's an ongoing conflict in the region. The Zairean Hutu, known as the Bahutu, and Zairean Tutsi, the Bartutsi, are fighting. Now, the perpetrators of the Rwandan genocide are recruiting local Bahutu to join their cause to try to take over this part of Zaire and make it part of Rwanda. Well, there seemed to be a lot of security problems, and as we investigated it more, we found out that there was this really active war going on between the Bahutu and the Batutsi, so these two groups that were there. So with those splits that were going on, they were starting to form in that Zairean society uh, in Masisi, and there were lots of fights and battles going on with them and a lot of killings, hostage takings. And there were a lot of displaced people that were moving around the Masisi area and people moving, spending three days in one place and then moving on to the next one. There was a lot of fear. And so when we found out about that, um, we started to move around more in the area uh, to try and support the health centres and to give some drugs, to give some trainings and, and things like that. Um, but we realised that there were a lot of people who were coming in who were showing these physical signs of having been shot or having even machete wounds. And we started to hear more and more about, you know, you shouldn't go to this place or you shouldn't go to that place because these things were happening and they thought it wasn't safe for us to go. And we also saw these real big groups of displaced people starting to come into some of the towns or the places that we were at. There were a lot of churches and parishes, and it was in many of those places that the groups of Tutsi were hiding and they were being protected by local priests. And you could see the front lines as they had sort of the areas marked out all over the territory with either logs that they put on the on the road that were painted white, um, which marked that, you know, you shouldn't be crossing this as, a, as an area. And so there was fighting going on all over, over that territory. One village of around 5,000 people where Rachel and the MSF team worked was totally surrounded by Hutu. People felt that they couldn't go out of their village because when they did go out to go to their fields where they got their food, um, many of them got killed. Um, so they felt completely closed in. And apart from the church, we were the only group that went in there regularly bringing food and supplies. And that was a, a constant negotiation with the Hutu groups who were surrounding um, and they would often say to us, yeah, well, why are you helping them? You like the Tutsis more than us? And we said, no, if you have people that need help as well, we're here to help you. We don't pick sides. We just need to help people who have um, health issues and need support. So we told them that if they had wounded people, we would look after their wounded as well, and that we would look after anybody. And so we did. We often went and helped um, the people who were surrounding the village with their wounded, and that gave us access to go inside the village to help those people. As well as that, we also had a lot of radio contacts because we'd been working on a drug distribution program in North Kivu for many years and we had contacts in about 350 different health centres across North Kivu. Um, we could find out where we could go, which roads we could use, um, when there was something really serious happening in one village or in a parish. And we also had relationships with the church posts and there's a lot of monasteries in the north of Kivu and they would give us a lot of information also about what was going on. MSF Holland has been trying to draw the international community's attention to the continued persecution of Masisi's Tutsi population for months, but nothing is working. Rachel is also working in Goma, the regional capital of North Kivu. So for the five months before that time, we'd been trying to do a lot of advocacy work. And that really is, you know, that kind of bilateral work, talking to different people who were passing through. There were a lot of organisations, governments, uh, delegations, etc., coming through 
Goma at that time, and they were all there because they were very concerned about the refugee camps, rightly. But nobody was talking about what was happening in Masisi and this, um, this continuation uh, of the war. So anyone that passed through Goma, I would go and find them, and I would talk to them about Masisi. And they always looked at me somewhat surprised, like, what are you talking about? Why aren't you talking about the camps and what's going on in the camps? And um, but I was talking about, you know, that there was real signs that this war was extending beyond and we needed to do more. Um, we contacted embassies, we contacted other agencies that were also working in um, Goma. Um, you have to remember that time we didn't have internet <laughs> and we didn't have a very easy communication. So a lot of this had to be done by mouth. There was no big email blast that we could send out. I had to talk to people by phone or in person. We were also trying at Amsterdam level, so our, our main office was in Amsterdam, and we were asking them to get in touch with different organisations, trying to talk to the European Union, to the Dutch government, who was um, partly funding the project, to talk about what was going out. It was much more about silent diplomacy than sort of a public advocacy, and it simply didn't get onto the agenda. Rachel remembers one particularly frustrating meeting with an EU representative who was coming through Goma and whom she met at an embassy party on the edge of Lake Kivu. I met this guy and I started to talk to him about Masisi and I just was so outraged. I said, how can you just, as the European Union, just sit by and watch this go on when there's people dying and you're not covering it? There's no funding for this, there's no interest in this. And you only come here to talk about the camps. And yet there's this war going on and all these people are dying. And his response to me was, young lady, you have your job and I have mine. You have to look after the poor starving ones and I have to deal with regional politics. And it was such a moment of disillusionment for me because I realised that the politics of the Great Lake regions was far greater than we were and that the people inside of all of this were really the last consideration in the, the conflict that was going on. Then, on the 12th of May 1996, a monastery where several thousand Zairean Tutsi are taking refuge is attacked. So there was a large group of Tutsi who were hiding in a church very near the town of Masisi, and um, the church was surrounded by some grounds and we'd actually been going there um, to give medical care, also trying to help with food and shelter. Um, and it was a lot of women and children inside of there. And we had been to having really regular contact with the priest. He had a radio there and we would talk to him every few days. He would tell us about going on. And every time we spoke, he was like, please, you need to help us. We need to get the people out of here. We're in real danger. There are attacks that are going on around the church every night. Um, and then one day we were travelling out, and just before they got there, some people ran out uh, onto the road in front of us and stopped the car and said, you have to stop, you have to stop, everyone's being massacred, they're all being killed, everyone's dead, and the rest have fled. And so our team, we decided to go on to the place because we felt we had to witness what had happened, and we saw the results of the massacre there, there were bodies everywhere. All the other people who had been in that church had fled quite a long way away and the priest had fled with them. Um, and then when we got back to our base after that, we just realised that we, could, we had to speak out publicly, that we couldn't um, carry on with this silent diplomacy that was having no impact whatsoever and that we had to speak out in public. A hundred people are thought to be killed, and many survivors flee to the nearby village of Kichanga, north of Masisi town. 
But the residents of Kachanga and the local MSF-supported clinic there are already struggling to care for 15,000 people who fled to the village after being displaced by the ongoing civil war. MSF sets up a surgical team to care for the wounded new arrivals. After nine days of delays from UNHCR, the MSF Holland team, stationed in North Kivu's regional capital, Goma, issues a carefully worded press release. At least 3,000 ethnic Tutsi living in the Masisi region are currently surrounded in the villages of Kitchanga and Yamitaba, some three hours from Goma. Armed groups, primarily Zairi and Hutu, control the access roads to the villages. These 3,000 people face death unless they are evacuated and protected immediately. Although Zairean authorities are aware of the situation, they are not taking necessary measures. Despite Médecins Sans Frontières' repeated calls for protection of minorities in the Misisi region, the United Nations continues to neglect this problem. Today, evacuation appears to be the only solution that could still save this population. The release is also put out by MSF UK and MSF Belgium, but there are some important differences from the original. In a message to her programme manager in Amsterdam, Rachel writes, the idea was to witness, not to denounce. She remembers the fallout from that statement. You know, that massacre was really the last straw um, and we decided to make a statement about it, knowing that there were going to be lots of risks because when we were speaking out publicly at that time, there was always this risk that we would no longer be able to work and stay on the side of the populations that we were trying to work with. Um, but this was a moment where we had to make a decision, and so we decided that we, you know, what we were doing was so small uh, in the big scheme of things, and this massacre had really shown us that. So, realizing that, we also wanted to be very careful because we didn't want to point out one group or the other, whether it was the Bahutu or the Batutsi. We knew that it was the Bahutu who attacked the Batutsi, but we didn't want to say that out uh, in public because there were so many problems in that area and there was already such a politicization of the whole conflict going on, which was really taking away from the humanitarian needs of the people. We felt that people could make their own conclusions, but that what we would say as MSF is that there's a group of displaced people in that church that were attacked and massacred in Masisi, and that the whole of this was linked to the conflict that was going on inside the camps in Goma at that time. So we made a statement, and was agreed with uh, the headquarters, and then we distributed it to all the other sections uh, inside Médecins Sans Frontières, because uh, we had some rules about the way that we communicated on things. So when one section produced a statement, the idea was then all the other sections of MSF would distribute that and put it out onto the me into the media in their own countries. So the next day, the press release was produced and it went out publicly in all the sections in a coordinated way. And all the teams had agreed to this um, press release and we'd been extremely careful with the wording and every word was measured. So mainly that was fine, that press release, it was a good one, but there were a couple of sections who decided to change a few of the words um, without consulting with the team on the ground. So in Belgium, for instance, they said it very clearly that the Hutu had attacked the Tutsi and massacred them. Um, and also in the UK, uh, they decided to say that the UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, hadn't done anything about the situation and had completely neglected all the um, displaced people in that region. 
These are clearly two extremely political statements um, that seem very easy when you're sitting in Europe, but on a local level, that made our life really, really difficult. Because what had happened, I as the head of mission, I'd given the statement that we were going to make um, to all the agencies in advance, and I'd explained to them, some of them they didn't like that we were making a statement, um, but they agreed with it. But when the press release went out in Europe, what they saw was something different, and including the UK, which actually directly criticised the UNHCR. So they were furious with me. Um, and I had to stand up for the organisation and sort of say, well, you know, I can't control this. Uh, it's not what we wanted, but, you know, this is the statement that they wanted to make. So that created some difficulties with the UNHCR. And the telephone was ringing constantly for 24 hours. And a lot of the media picked on that statement that this was about the Hutu against the Tutsi, because, of course, this just sort of uh, was a follow on an echo of what had happened during the genocide um, so we got a lot of coverage, it was in the press, but it created issues on the ground, though we did, with the ICRC, agree and manage to get the people who were remaining in that um, church out. We got them out, the UNHCR took care of them, so they weren't in danger anymore, and that was, in the end of the day, very important. Meanwhile, the new government in Rwanda wants to put an end to the threat posed by the Hutu extremists in eastern Zaire. They back a Zairean armed movement called the Alliance of Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Congo Zaire. Known as the AFDL for short, this rebel group is a coalition of forces led by Laurent Desiree Kabila. They oppose the Zairean president, Mobutu Sese Seko, who is seen by many Zairean Tutsi as having welcomed the perpetrators of the genocide of the Rwandan Tutsi into the country and allowed them to set up bases in the Kivu refugee camps. So, when the AFDL starts recruiting young men from the Banyamulenge, that is, the Tutsi ethnic groups of eastern Zaire, many sign up. For a while, Rwanda denies their enlisting and equipping the Alliance rebel fighters in eastern Zaire, but it's well known that they, along with other backers like Uganda and Burundi, all have large Tutsi populations and are sympathetic to getting rid of Mobutu. By September 1996, there are regular clashes between the Alliance and Mobutu's Zairean army. In October, Rwandan and Burundian armies join the alliance and attack the largest Hutu refugee camp in the Kivus. This is followed by attacks on other camps along the border in eastern Zaire. Hundreds of thousands of refugees are once again forced to flee. Most people head for the Kivus' regional capitals, Goma in the north and Bukavu in the south. MSF Holland has been working on a report on the role played by these refugee camps in eastern Zaire and the spread of conflict and ethnic cleansing throughout the Masisi region. On the eve of the report's publication, war breaks out between Rwanda and Zaire. The report is still sent to various human rights organisations, the UN and journalists, but the moment is lost. It's out of date before it's even published. Rachel again. So we had written the report... Uh, I had been in the field, got all the consultation from all the staff, everyone agreed on the final copy, um, and it was meant to be issued on a certain date. 
And then it got delayed because there were people in headquarters who were still not happy with some of the language, some of the words that were used and were concerned about the impacts that it would have, even though everyone in the field said, like, let's get this out, we need it now. Basically, they delayed it at headquarters, and while they delayed it, the war broke out, which was everything that had been said in the report. It basically presaged what actually happened. Um, we said in the report that we're on the brink of a regional war, um, that we need to act fast, that we need to act on what was happening in the Masisi region and look beyond the camps and understand what the camps were doing to the surrounding region. But we were too slow to publish it. We were probably, we were like a week late. And so it was really, really hard luck because I think that that report um, could really have had an impact on government's understanding of the situation and we would have had a, a lot of coverage on it because what we wanted to do was use that document to lobby the UN and to governments and to say to them this is what we believe is happening and have a big press release to go with it but at the end of the day because we were too slow we never got further than binding the report and it became another one of those reports that sits on a shelf in an office and gets dusty we did try to give it out and we said to governments, right, well, it's already out of date because the war has already begun, but please use it in whatever way you can. Um, you might find it useful for your work in the area. It was quite a good background. It wasn't an operational report as such. It was more of a, an analytical report that was trying to understand the context and explain the, the reality of what was happening in Masisi based on that historical context. On the 25th of October 1996, the Zairean government declares a state of emergency in the provinces of North and South Kivu. Humanitarian organisations start evacuating their staff from the Kivus. The First Congo War begins. This MSF podcast is based on an original MSF case study called The Hunting and Killing of Rwandan Refugees in Zaire, Congo. 1996 to 1997. It's written by Laurence Binet and is part of the Speaking Out Case Studies series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Laurence Binet, Martin Saulnier, and Rebecca Golden Timsar. The narrator is Nick Owen. The extracts are read by Danielle Stagg and Matthew Wade. Music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Rachel Cadell Monroe. To read the full study and discover other case studies, please go to our website, msf.org/speakingout. Thanks for listening. <laughs>